Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for coming to this uh, mm. last event. This is a prop. It's not for us. Uh, for you. Yes, yeah, for, for you. You'll find out why in, in a minute. Um, uh, welcome to this event supported by Carrie Adina Kamel. I think it's her... Well, where are you? Birthday. Happy birthday. Happy thank birthday. you for supporting the event. Thank you. Happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. Um, and I should say, because I'll forget this at the end, that Simon will be signing copies of uh, it, many of his books outside afterwards. Okay, so I've just told you the sponsor and the signing. Those are the key things I had to do. And and her mother, yes, all right, her mother, yes, all right, all right, you've had your moment, darling. Um, anyway, the thing is, um, uh, you don't really need to know who's signing. Would you like to rephrase that? Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> her birthday. Oh, so it's your birthday. Oh, well, happy, whose birthday is it? Your birthday, all right. Oh, okay. Okay, well, um, phone's off, please, if you don't mind. Um, so, uh, Simon Sharma, I, normally at these events, people do a long introduction of all of Simon's books. Simon's deliberately asked me not to do this, and I often get, I've interviewed Simon before, and, uh, I get so nervous about it sometimes. Last time, I introduced him as Simon Armitage. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, afterwards, somebody, uh, and just now, somebody said, oh, look, it's Ian McKellen. I said, no, no, it is Simon Sharma. I promise you, it's not Ian McKellen. We've done the actors. Now we're doing the historian. So um, I'm really, really uh, pleased to welcome. This is the real Simon Sharma. Uh, hashtag real Simon Sharma. And uh, it really is him. And so that's enough of me speaking. So we're going to talk through Simon's life and his uh, reading and the works that have inspired him to be uh, the historian I so and all of us so admire. I think he's a really wonderful writer. So how do you become a wonderful writer? Perhaps by being a very acute reader. So that's the purpose of this session. But before we start, Simon wants to play a little game. Yes, you didn't think you'd get out of this without an exam, right? Actually, so, um, so this is a book which had a formative influence on me. And James doesn't know what it is. And anyone who gets it right will be the lucky winner of a bottle of roses. A bottle of white Zinfandel. What could be better <laughs> to, to finish off a gorgeous weekend? So I'm going to read just, it's the opening um, two sentences, actually. And then you shout out if you, if you know. And now, if nobody knows, there'll be other... That looking at you, I bet someone gets the white stuff straight away. But then we will come back to it through we the will. session. Until we will, whether you like you it or it. not. Yeah. All right, ready? I don't care what you say. 18,000 pounds sterling is a lot of money. The British government had instructed me to pay it to the man at the corner table who was now using knife and fork to commit ritual murder on a cream pastry. Nope, nope. <laughs> Any others? No, no, not Le Carre. Not John Buckley. No. Right, good. Well, that's come back. That's good. Good. That's good. We don't, we don't good. 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 So, um, so Simon, you were born in 1945. Yep. Uh, in a very uh, sort of historic thing to be born for a historian. Um, and uh, I think you, the two things, and we've just done a Desert Island uh, book session, so I think the, the key The street I was born on was mostly demolished right. that night. Really? Yes, not. they failed to... I'm not sure I was speci specifically targeted, um, <laughs> but, but if I was, they missed, for better or worse. And, and so the first two things we're going to talk about is, is, is Shakespeare and the Bible. And we're going to start with Shakespeare, uh, because um, your father... Um, uh, made you learn whole sections of Shakespeare, did, and the Shakespeare histories had a formative influence on you. Yeah. So let's start by talking about Shakespeare's histories. Yeah, they were. My, my dad was um, 
Uh, you know, to, it, when, you, when you're born in 45 and you say you started reading around, you know, 1950 or so, um, there were two things you were really aware of. If your dad came from the East End and was largely autodidact, as my, my dad was. Um, and one was, you know, your Jewish religion and the Bible, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the other was, in my father's case, and this is true of a lot of boys who went to Hackney Grammar, um, Pinter, for example, just infatuated to the point of unstoppable passion with English literature, um, apart from Shakespeare. And my father and I spent two years every Sunday afternoon, I think I was about started when I was about 12, reading through the entire corpus with both of us taking all the parts. My mother and sister fled the house when we did, when we did that. But my father, for, my, for, for my father, it was a really point of historical principle that Britain was the place which had kind of saved the Jews. You know, who knows if the invasion had been successful, whether that had been the case. But our, our existence was proof that it had happened. And somehow my father felt that through Churchill's speeches, I mean, the first time I heard, we few, we happy few, you know, I assumed Churchill had written it rather than Shakespeare's Henry V. So what's this sense actually in which a certain kind of decency was actually locked into the past, and the decency had to be expressed in literature, and therefore that's why the histories were so important. And my father did, there were other things he got me to do. <laughs> this was really weird, a um, bit from Merchant of Venice, but Portia, you know. So it was the, um, the non-Jew who was also the wrong gender, so, but I still had to do the quality of mercy. Um, and Seven Ages of Man, I had to learn that. But the big treat was um, going to see Richard Burton as Henry V. I was 10 years old um, in the old Vic. And the emphasis in 1955 was on old. I mean, it was kind of falling down. But I thought I was like three rows from the front. I was 10 years old. I thought I could smell the globe, really. I was smelling the kind of moth-eaten old Vic costume department. And, then, and the first moment um, was John Neville you know, as chorus. It was an incredible season, it's a famous one. It's pretty, our actor friends aren't here, because it was the season where um, Neville and Burton switched roles um, as Iago and Othello yeah. uh, on alternate days, actually. There was, it was said that they were both drinking so much that they actually arrived at the theater. I think, I think the, uh, the real Simon's here. Isn't it, aren't you? No, maybe he's, he's skived off. But um, nobody knows if this is an apocryphal story. When they got to theatre, they couldn't remember who it was supposed to be doing. And the worst thing is that they both started to speak. I okay, yeah, okay, really, which would not have been good. So there I am. But in, uh, and John Neville then started over a muse of fire that was in the brightest heaven invention. My kingdom for a stage, princes to act, monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then would warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars and at his heels famine, fire, and sword, like pounds, would crouch for employment. And that was, I had to learn that, but I had to learn um, the whole of the speech before Harfleur in order to be allowed to go to see that play. So I remember that speech in, still in my kind of nine-year-old, we had a fantastic kid do the chorus, Yes, we did, we? We, did, we did a You uh, should say show. something about that. No, we, this is about you, Simon, it's oh. not about other people. But uh, we did, we did this film about Shakespeare. We did, yeah, we did, a, we did a film about yeah. children learning Shakespeare. It was, was Little a, Jack a, who a did little the boy. chorus. Yeah, it was, it was a tiny boy. He did a tiny boy who did the chorus. It was, it was amazing. Anyway, so, yeah, no, you. So I just wondered how much that, do you think the iambic pentameter went into your prose 
at a very early age? Um, well, if it did, um, yeah, it might have done, but I certainly would have noticed it and certainly didn't calculate it in that way. Um, but certainly the sense, I don't know, I'm probably a bit of an enjamber, really, actually, which is not the same thing. But certainly the sense in which history um, is a rich kind of storytelling. I, I think I, I'm about to give a lecture next week uh, in Oxford, actually, about spoken history. And lots of people know, I'm sure, that Herodotus, the very first Western historian, Greek historian, so-called father of history, <coughs> recited his history at the Pan-Hellenic Games in, uh, at uh, Olympia. And I suddenly thought about that long tradition which Shakespeare is part. In fact, you know, the, the, the Henry, if you think about it, Henry VI, which we've all been, I know, did you watch it? I watched it last night. It's very hard. I mean, it's, it's not, it may have been written with Thomas Nash, so it's you know, hard to make into a better play than it is. But what strikes me actually about that kind of spoken historical literature was that for a largely illiterate public, it was the first time they got, they weren't going to read Edward Hall or Hollinshed, but they were going to come in their thousands, as Nash boasted, to the roads in, uh, across the river. And so there was this extraordinary sense, really, uh, of declaimed history, the immediacy. So I think, I mean, it's not that when I write, I think about, well, is it any good, you know, if you read it out loud, will it work? But I think that kind of vocalization, performative history, or you, <laughs> wonderful question James asked the actor this morning, so what's the difference between acting well and showing off? And there's something, I think, true in, maybe true in my writing, I don't know, but it's certainly true that, uh, my, that my dad's insistence that you get on the chair in the living room and pretend you're Henry V, that probably has stuck a bit, yeah. And, and certainly your childhood was, was obviously full of uh, the idea of storytelling, the idea mm. of making a story dramatic, making it vivid, making it alive. And my that, dad used to actually tell me he made up stories. Do you remember Just William? Yes. My dad had a, an equivalent of Just William, who was a kind of endearing rogue, age nine or something, I suppose, called Knock 'em Down Ginger. And every Saturday before, that was, a, that was the opposite from the Shakespeare deal, before we went to synagogue together, I used to climb into bed and my dad would give me another episode of Knock 'em Down Ginger. So, and there was Dickens after dinner. So the sense in which actually your bread and butter, was your nourishment was actually storytelling was, yeah. Uh, and, and this power of how to tell a story economically, how to tell it well, how to, well, not necessarily economically, yeah. Simon. <laughs> Who are you interviewing? Your books James? are quite long. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Economy, Landscape really. and memory. Um, anyway. I've always, all my life, I've tried to aim for clipped. Not really, just joking. <laughs> you know. um, but let's get on to the Bible, because that, I think that you read the Bible in different ways, but mainly, obviously, Old Testament we're talking about. Yeah, I thought, I mean, that would have been the first book, and... Um, uh, what really, um, you know, I read the Bible as a kind of adventure story. I felt sorry for my Christian friends because it was also goody-goody at that point, you know, whereas the Old Testament is full, apart from this kind of slightly unhinged, endlessly bad-tempered Jehovah. Um, you, you had all these people who were not cut out, you know, who were working above their pay grade. You know, why, you have to be a particularly sadistic God to pick on Moses, you can't actually say anything, who is sort of slow of speech, who's a stammerer. I felt so at one with Jonah. Um, let me try and reassemble that. Can you hear me now? Is that working? So, you know, Jonah, um, why me? Um, you know, get me to Tarshish immediately. That was wonderful. And then 
right at the beginning, this puzzled me, um, Cain and Abel, so you begin with a really kind of Quentin Tarantino beginning. <laughs> but I, I couldn't figure out why the kind of market, you know, the person, the market gardener was the murderer. Was it, it was either, you know, rather than the other way around. It was not the flocks and herds meat-eating Abel, but it's the bloke who produces turnips, you know, who is the homicidal brother. That was both profoundly wrong and genius right, really, at the same time. So there was also fantastic things. You know, I love Naboth's vineyard. And I mean, there was a, there's a lot of all the bits that were kind of wicked and all about kind of fleshly imperfection. Hello, King David, you know, were fantastic and were and are fantastic. Ezekiel, when did you last, oh, Archbishop, when did you last read the book of Ezekiel? Um, uh, yes. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's left home already. <laughs> know. You know, so. seventeen. Um, but it's, Exodus... tri it's trippy. How many people have read the Book of Ezekiel lately? Oh, yeah. try, t try it out. Um, this angel shows up and says, "Son of man, um, consume this." You know, I mean, in the Bible. And so he opens the book and says, "No, I mean, eat it physically." Exactly. So. He had to literally physically devour the Bible before he was allowed to speak it. That was very Well, wacky. Christians, of course, appropriated that and, as an idea of eating things. But I want to get you onto the book of Exodus because we know where this is coming because this goes to your first non-Desert Island book. So yeah. can we go straight to it? Or oh, sure. Okay, so the first, the first non-Desert Island book is um, Lord Russell's oh, book, yeah. The Scourge of the Swastika, which is about the fate of the Jews in the Second World War. Yeah, there's nothing funny to say about this. It was, it, what was extraordinary was, it's not true that the, the, the true, you know, the, what's often said is no one wanted it, either in Israel um, or in the diaspora wanted to talk about the Holocaust. That's not true, actually. Um, uh, I, we, my mother's mother's family lost, um, for in Vienna, the Neumanns, that we lost some of our family in Mauthausen. Um, but, but all the same, you know, I. 45, I, we didn't, th th those images were not there. Um, uh, I remember my father uh, talking, not playing, you know, he couldn't replay it, but the effect that the famous Winford Vaughan Thomas discovery of, you know, coming on Belson had on him, and he remembers <laughs> listening to it. But there was a synagogue library. Um, I used to go to Hebrew classes three times a week. I ended up teaching in Hebrew class. And there was a little library, and I remember, um, when the scourge of Swastika, Lord Russell Liverpool was one of the Nuremberg judges, I think. Is that yes. right? Or maybe yes. he was the head judge. Uh, no, no, he was an assistant okay. judge. Okay, assistant judge. And, um, and somebody, and this book was on the table, and it opened uh, on one of those photos of stacks of, bo of bones, of bodies, of bodies that were no longer recognizable as bodies, eye sockets. And um, I was horrified and completely electrified as well, really, and sort of sat there um, realizing that it was a sort of, you know, bizarre piece of luck that I was around at all. It was just, thank you, the English Channel again, and, and again, it was Churchill. But it was, it was you know, a, a lot, of, lot of the work I've been doing on Jewish history, um, including that series, was, as I think I was saying to James, you know, it's a project to celebrate the vitality of being Jewish in the face of misery and horror. Um, but at the same time, and that's very important, I think, actually, but at the same time, you know, there is the gravitational pull of this teleology of mass murder 
And that was the first time as a, as a child I'd, I'd seen that. And it was obscene in every possible way, actually. And I think, actually, what it accounted for, even though I did write a book about the Rothschilds and the early history of Jewish settlement in Palestine, um, I, I, I didn't want to be a Jewish, even, even with everything we talked about in the Bible and learning Hebrew at a young age and teaching Hebrew classes, I, I didn't want to go anywhere near that history for a very, very long time, actually. Now you, so that, that's the first book, The Scourge of the Swastika by Lord Russell. I'm just going to recap, just in case you want to keep a list. Um, and you just said, um, thank God for the English Channel, thank goodness right. for the English Channel. Right. So this is another book about mm. attack, which is one of the first bracingly yeah. entertaining histories that you read, which is The yeah. Defeat of the Spanish Armada by Garrett Mattingly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a really a wonderful book. It's a book I wish I'd written in a way. It's sort of a perfect narrative, I think. Mattingly was a predecessor, I don't know, died long before I got to Columbia, but he's a professor at Columbia University. And actually, from reading this, I always assumed a rather debonair, exuberant kind of historian one, one hopes one's colleagues will be. In fact, he turns out to have been very neurotically quiet and closed and... Um, a slightly non-companionable member of the Columbia History Department. You wouldn't know, but I opened this book, and I, even as a kid, I, I, I knew how this was going to end, but I was stunned by, you know, the opening paragraph is the way I give it to my students in writing class. And do you mind if I read it? It's a short paragraph, and I just, we're going to do a bit of kind of deconstruction unpacking here. It's called Curtain Razor, and that turns out to be very important, actually, because it's about, it, it's going to be about the execution of Mary Queen of Scots, and it, the premise of it is that, that um, again, performance history, particularly in, in the late Elizabethan world, that there is, uh, you can't be a political person or a public person, whether you're the Queen or Mary Stuart or, or anybody, really, unless you had a very strongly developed sense of body language and all of it. So it's called the curtain raiser because the premise is that that uh, that Mary Stuart gets her revenge on her on her cousin um, by the costume she's wearing and the way she goes to her execution. But it begins in the following way: Fotheringay, February the 18th, 1587. Mr. Beale had not brought the warrant until Sunday evening, but by Wednesday morning, before dawn outlined its high windows, the great hall at Fotheringay was ready. Though the Earl of Shrewsbury had returned only the day before, nobody wanted any more delay. Nobody knew what messenger might be riding on the London road. Nobody knew which of the others might not weaken if they waited another day. Um, and then there's a description of what Fotheringay Hall was like and its furniture. What I was very struck by, um, and when I went back to it, you know, thinking about the way narrative happens in history, is that it begins in media race. There, there is no introduction. There's no, no saying, um, in, in 1957, Professor Juggins wrote a powerfully important seminal work on the defeat and rout, and, uh, but little did, but he'd missed the crucial archive at Simancas that I happened to stumble on by some act of goodwill. And therefore, so none of these kind of rituals of self-differentiation. It, I, I was thinking about things that begin in media race. Tolstoy begins, yes. we'll talk about, with A. B. en Prince, with a snatch of conversation, Carlyle's French Revolution, another important book for me. It begins with um, somebody uh, uh, 
delivering a piece of polite conversation about the names of kings. So it was as though, um, you know, beginning books, part of the wiring of history, this goes for doing television history too, is just sort of kicking open a window and pitching someone into a world that's gone, that may alive. And we don't know who Mr. Beale is. I mean, it can. We're going to kind of find out. We don't really know who the Earl of Shrewsbury is. The other thing was the kind of cadence and sonority of it. Mm. What, it's the repetition of nobody. Yes. I'm sure that was conscious. And nobody is like repeated three times is like a tolling bell, is it not? Nobody, nobody, nobody. And the, the sort of sense in which you're hearing, but you're kind of feeling what that curtain raiser would be. And it was absolute literary magic. And it's all sustained, there are no footnotes, um, but you get to the end and you have, oh, 25 pages on his sources, which are all impeccable. But, but the sources don't show, you yes. know. Um, so that was, it's, it's still an extraordinary model. And this idea of dramatic storytelling, this idea of arriving in medias res, I think we also find this in our next book, which is Edmund Wilson's To the Finland Station, which is about Lenin <laughs> and many other yeah. things. So To the Finland Station by Edmund Wilson. Simon. Yeah, Edmund Wilson was a New Yorker writer. He was a great essayist. Um, he worked with the, oh, one of the New Deal projects. Um, you know, he was not working class. Um, but he was a real believer um, in America in the 1930s. Um, in the socialist tradition, the revolutionary tradition. And, um, uh, and I had a lot of left-wing uh, teachers, uh, which was fine by me, at Haberdashers, my school, which is a wonderful place to go to. It was called Haberdashers at Hampstead School for the most of the time I was there, which meant it was in grunge-heavy Cricklewood, which was just what I wanted. I hated it when it went out to the bosky suburbia of Elstree. Um, so we had a lot of you know, incentive to read this. I think a, a history teacher called Ian Lister put this in my hands. And it is a kind of genealogy. It ends up, it's called that, of course, because it finishes with, with Lenin. But it has, um, it begins, it is again a thrilling read. And it begins with, extraordinarily, with Michelet, the great French historian of the French Revolution, discovering an Italian, a very cranky and extraordinary historian called Giambattista Vico, who lived in 18th century Naples. And um, there are one, I'm trying to find, the, there's a passage really where um, it, the, Michelet's um, father was a printer, and he therefore suffers the censors, the Napoleonic police, thought police, come and they lock the printing press. And um, Little Jules remember that as, as though it was a kind of padlock on someone's mouth or ears or eyes, as a moment of closing down. But he also discovered an extraordinary open-air museum um, that was created by someone called Alexandre Lenoir. Lenoir was someone who rescued medieval statuary from the iconoclastic vandals, that the word was coined in the French Revolution, and put them in a kind of churchyard as a kind of open museum of French, particularly medieval history. And it was open all night, and Michelet recalled, and that's where he got the history bug, walking under the moonlight amidst the half-broken-up tombs of kings. And Wilson gets that, you know, chain of memory. In a way, what, history, what historians are 
um, were curators of memories, really, of chains of memory, some which are written down and some which are orally transmitted. And that's what you know really um, passionately runs, runs through this book. And, and it's a beginning, perhaps, of your um, interest and study of revolutionary moments, revolutionary yeah. ideology, and perhaps the, the first... Sorry? No. It's yours. No. 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 It's time for another reading, Do you want another? We're going to the French Revolution, but before we go to France, you can have another three No. Good try. Good try. I walked down Charlotte Street towards Soho. It was that... Barrett, you won. Marcy Kahan, you have won. You won. <laughs> which, which, which Len Dayton book? Ah. I, I know the line. Jean Jean Jean. Yeah, but which, which is the name, which is the book? Hold on. Which is the Len Dayton book? <laughs> <laughs> I think we do give yeah, her the prize. The it's the Ipcrest file. Which is the Ipcrest file. Yeah. 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 That's the character I wanted to be. Well done. <laughs> 1962. So the Ipcrest file, 1962. Yeah. Why was it such an influence on you? Oh, I thought... Nobody would thought that great historian Simon Chamber would be influenced by Len Dayton, would they? Yeah, well, he's a very yeah. underrated writer. Yeah. He, he wrote, you know, he was in Bomber Command, so he wrote an amazing novel about, about you know, life as a bomber. No, it was the other... Well, this is the odd bit of me, actually, because I think um, there is a bit of me which is... Um, Sardonically cool. You would. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, honestly. Okay, you're laughing. It's quite right. My my wife go, to, you know, disintegrates in hel helpless laughter when I say that. I lived in modernist houses. I suppose I was trying to up the cool, really. It being 62. Um, there is a photo that you can find so on the web of me, more or less as as Michael Caine. Um, <laughs> not as good looking, alas, actually. And you, um, smoke, you smoked the cigarettes, didn't you? He, I was, uh, cigarettes meant a lot, and um, he, the figure who's not named, he's only named in the film, um, Harry Palmer. Uh, Michael Caine came up with the name Harry, and then actually it was some very boring person who he'd called Tommy Palmer, I think. So that's how they put the name together, but he's not named in the book. But he's very heavy on Gaulois. I thought actually Gaulois smokers were cities, and. Uh, I was into Gitan, which were big boy cigarettes in my view. And I was trying to do, you know that thing, any of you see, you know, Belmondo in his glory in a, uh, a boule souffle where he manages to make the cigarette kind of hang on, yeah, that's, that's what the look I was after, actually. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. <laughs> And so on the Parisian theme... Do you think I failed? No, 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 Simon. Yeah, obviously, yeah. No, you've, your life has been one of relentless success. Um, uh, Possibly not uh, imitating Jean-Paul Belmont, <laughs> but, you know, kind of everything. Um, so in Paris, and the, we were on to the Finland station, this uh, revolutionary Paris and the French Revolution is a major subject and one of uh, subjects of Simon's uh, two of his earliest books. Um, and we're coming on to Richard Cobb. Uh, the historian who saw, um, who aimed to write famously history from below. So instead of from the aristocracy, it's history from the street. And Simon's going to talk a little bit about The Police and the People uh, by Richard Cobb. Yeah. Um, Cobb was, an uh, extraordinary thing about Cambridge in the 60s, where I was a young dom, was that there was actually no seminar of any kind for graduate students on European history um, beyond the 
16th century, I think, actually, until you got to the 19th century. It's a great swathe. And the good thing was, if you wanted to be amidst young colleagues um, and not so young professors, you drove through the Bedfordshire sprout fields to Oxford and onwards. And I did, and there was Cobb um, was the famous seminar included incredible historians, Colin Lucas and Alvin Houghton, and there was a bust of Voltaire, sort of fake version of Oudon's bust of Voltaire, which looked like, you know, Richard Cobb's twin brother, sort of separated at birth. And um, Cobb was um, an extraordinary writer. He'd been um, trained, that deadly word for historians, really. He'd been trained by, again, with a great a Marxist historian, Georges Lefebvre, um, who wrote about the peasantry. Um, and, and he'd done his uh, thèse d'état, his doctorat d'état, in France with Lefebvre. So he was really, um, there were two things about how you did French revolutionary history. You could do history from below, but it had to essentially be ammunition for the basic Marxist view in which the French revolution was caused, um, caused by um, a thwarted bourgeoisie who had economic power but no political existence. And that was the way it happened, except that when you stop to think for a minute, you know, the revolutionary uh, revolution was caused, in a way, by language and ideology, much of which was in the mouths of aristocrats and priests like, you know, Mirabeau and Talleyrand, CAS, and so on. So, um, so Cobb was sort of restive about that. And he, he was also restive about the kind of collective sanctif sanctification of the crowds. And what he really wanted to do was a kind of extraordinary verite. Um, he wanted to let these dead voices in the archives just be present in your life day by day without paying attention to whether or not Robespierre was in power or not in power. And the more he did that, the more he became um, hostile to those who invoked the name of, of the people. The real heroism was just about someone trying to survive a moment of immense turmoil. There was a wonderful book called Death in Paris, tiny book. Um, and I think a lot of these books were out of print. David Gilmore, bless him, did a lovely collection of Richard's writings. Um, but I think that's probably out of print now. But Death in Paris was based on one source in the archives. And these were the letters, farewell letters, written by young women who had no means to support their babies, whether or not they'd been knocked up, and that most of the babies you think were illegitimate because they went out of their way to say they'd been baptized. These were letters before the children were abandoned by young women who were, threw themselves into the Seine and died of drowning, and there were many of them. And that's why, hence, death in Paris. And from that, Richard produced this quilt. The other thing about Cobb, finally, was that for me, he was, he, he was an extraordinarily um, sort of uncontained writer. In a, you know, there were two traditions if you sat at his feet, and he was himself chaotic and never showed up to tutorials and was an appalling drunk a lot of the time. And um, um, I mean, Colin Lucas and I used to carry him to bed in Bailey a lot, and he was just so blotto. Um, but um, the, 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 in, in a way, that Marxist tradition that we've been talking about was French classicism, as though it was Racine or Corneille. And then there was this kind of wild, careening, sensuously abundant kind of, which begins with Rabelais, you know, or maybe even begins with Ronsard or something mm -hmm. like that. 
for, with, the play, with the play art, but certainly begins with Rabelais. And for Richard went into, um, you know, all the way to the hideous but electrifying Céline and to Keno, who was, Keno was something of Richard's. And so Richard would write, he would jump centuries, he would jump voices, and um, he, I thought, okay, you can really, you know, you don't want to write like Richard, who was literally inimitable, but the, what he did, you know, it was famously Auden who said, history is about breaking bed with the dead, that you above all, it's an attack on the silence of the dead, and, but you need to deliver a sense of place. That's another thing Richard said. He talked about the archive of the feet, about actually going to where you were talking about. So this is a little bit long. Is that, is that okay? It's the last paragraph of The Police and the People. It's not a very alluring title. This is about actually the, the revolutionary authorities' police who had to be responsible for the distribution of food in particular, but also who patrolled political opinions in the newspapers at the height of the terror. And this last bit is about hunger. Hunger employs its own outriders. Those who've already experienced it can see it announced not only in the sky, but in the fields, scrutinized each year with increasing anxiety week by week during the hot summer months. By 30 million anxious eyes, by the way, this is all one sentence, which is also important to me, a la Rabelais, really. In the figures for grain prices on the markets, in the amount of movement on rivers and roads, in the traffic of the barrier, in the conversation of visiting countrymen, in the letters of country relatives, or the discreet decrees of government. That's a perfect choice of words, the discreet decrees of government. In the unspectacular efforts of municipalities to extend the limits of their cemeteries. In the number of times two men carrying a covered object emerge from a hospital by night, in unusually massive orders of quicklime, in the dispatch of a food commissioner to Genoa, Geneva, Hamburg, Bern, Tunis, Copenhagen, in the prayers of the pious, the secret sermons of barn priests, in the cards of Diseurs de Bonaventure, fortune tellers, for whom famine was a better customer than marriage, violent death, war, or success in money or love, in the anxious faces of women, or in the pallor of those who've eaten dead war horses, in the sword worn by an imprudent mare, in the shadow thrown at a certain hour of the day, seen from a certain language, repetition again, of a certain statue in a certain town. It is something that comes by stealth without fanfare, yet preceded by a thousand imperceptible signs that the 18th century marginal could pick out, just as though just as those who were in the know, the mayor, the borough engineer, and the members of the rat killers department knew that Gaston, with his broad brown and black back, the size, size of a largish mastiff, displayed behind drawn curtains in his cardboard box, was just one of a race of invaders, a new race of giant rats already in possession of the city and waiting only for the signal to come up from the sewers and take over. That's how history should be written. Um, we, we talked before about Collingwood and uh, yeah. the, idea, the idea that you have to, it's, it's not enough to recount, it has to be some kind of historical reenactment. It have to reenact, you have to relive it. And I think that's in Collingwood's idea of history. Isn't yeah, it, it is. 
Um, uh, uh, yes, that's a book which did have a big impact on me. Actually, it's very. He was a he was a philo Oxford philosopher in the thirties um, and on, uh, but he was not an analytical philosopher. He's not interested in the kind of post Wittgenstein um, study of language and it's the the, the variable wiring between what we think we're saying and what we actually are saying. He was an old-fashioned kind of idealist, metaphysical philosopher, really. Um, and, um, and he wrote this book called The Idea of History, which, is, which was really an invitation for the imagination to coexist uh, without any compromise uh, with empirically looking at the evidence. And Collingwood very memorably in a passage, he described historians in a way in which I responded to um, as... Um, kind of uh, basically stumbling gumshoes as slightly incompetent detectives. That set me off on the whole forensic line which produced my work of fiction, Dead Certainties. But it, he said, so you're piecing together clues and fragments of the, the whole time. And he described really um, history writing as a kind of piece of fabric like this, literally a tent canopy, thrown over supports, and the supports were the evidence, the truth, from which you must not stray. But actually then the imaginative reach was, it was necessary condition. And so he talked about history as a kind of reenactment, and again, I wish our friends were still here, because you, you were required to be aware that it was, you know, don't kid yourself that you can be living in a world of Voltaire or the Venerable Bede or Thomas Cromwell or whatever, but you have to somehow divest yourself of, of contemporary sensibility. And, and usually the sources, when you're in, there are some historians here I know, my wonderful friend Anne, when you're in total immersion, again, rather like what I think Simon Callow was saying, um, the sources kind of start to take over you and you become this, I wouldn't say so much in gumshoe, it's kind of ventriloquist for them. I felt that very strongly with, with Rough Crossings, actually, and, and with the French Revolution book as well, very strongly with that, and that, I, I keep to that. You know when, and of course you're trying to, with the Greeks, you know, raise questions. The analytical, uh, the analytical part of our identity is fundamental as well. You know, they, historia Herodotus means both, means in the first place inquiry, and in the second place, a piece, you know, the narrative side of things. So, but you know somehow when just simply the kind of armature, you know, of, of asking questions um, so that you can weld together cause and effect. Carlyle's very good on that. He's very rude about historians who proceed adamantly to connect together cause, effect, result, consequence, and have left the kind of you know, mess, really, of human reality behind. Now, you've, you've, um, you've talked about this great arc flown over uh, facts, this, this great arc of ideas, and, of course, you have also experimented with fiction a little bit. You just right. mentioned dead certainties. So um, we're gonna, I think we're going to move on to fiction, a little bit of moment of fiction here. Um, we're already miles behind in what we plan to discuss, so, so we're never going to get to the end, by the way. I'm sorry, but I'll, I'll give you a little reading list at the end. Um, but um, so in terms of what makes you decide to write uh, this, I know the gaps between fact and fiction are permeable a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but uh, we, we, we're now going to come to uh, great novels written at historical 
uh, interstices at moments of great historical change, at yeah. moments of really dramatic moments of history in which the novelist comes into play. And um, so let's have a laugh by starting with War and Peace. Uh, and we made a film, a little film for the big read. I it think it's did. both of our favourite books. Did it so make you? Did it make you? Because we had had this um, experience together, which was really wonderful. It's just half an hour. There was a big read. I don't know if you remember that. You're voting, right? So War and Peace amazingly made it into the top ten, and then James and I were commissioned to go and hey, piece of cake. Eh? I think you said, <laughs> you know, War and Peace in half an hour. Well, we decided um, to do peace. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, we did. We did. No, we did. We did, we did, that. did, war, we did a bit of war. Um, and so what um, is it about this book? Never mind about us, Simon. What is no. it about war and peace that makes okay. it your? I mean, I know what you think, but they don't know what you think. So, well, I, th I, th I, th you know, all of human life is there, really. I mean, it, it is that, um, uh, you know, history deals with, and I, I, th this is this affected me in in writing Silithons, with which I do not compare war and peace. But it's um, war and peace. A lot of history is really about the moment where private and personal lives actually are perforced, dragged into the public arena or are immensely um, illuminated or violently damaged by history and by the kind of godlike manipulations of those who think, in obviously in war and peace's case, Napoleon can control history. And what, what, why I love War and Peace so much, I'm, you know, I wrote a piece in, the, in the, uh, an article, an essay in, in, um, in FT when the television, televised dramatization came on, um, is uh, uh, saying that um, those of us who love War and Peace, you know, are, are War and Peace bores, really. But what makes it extraordinary is that it's the one book, I think, or one of those great books, where you can have this Olympian view of history as a kind of romantically costumed cock-up, you know, that's the way, which is entirely based, uh, Tolstoy went and he'd experienced war in the Crimean War and also in, um, oh, in one of the, in the Crimean Tartar campaign as well. But he'd, uh, he went into the archives, he did a huge amount of solid historical research. So you get that view of the famous beginning of Austerlitz where the French army whose positions have been absolutely screened by a dense fog, um, suddenly came into view. I thought Andrew Davis actually did that well in, in, in the series. I actually thought the war was actually better than the peace bit in the series. But then um, what is extraordinary about Tolstoy is that you don't just get the kind of in undifferentiated mass of soldiers moving towards catastrophe or victory. Tolstoy is able to listen to them shouting or singing or individual ones, one who's drunk a bit too much vodka, one who's scared and so on. But you also, and this is what, what we did, never mind, it's only about us, there are tiny moments, tiny moments of profound close-up. And James indulged me, I said one of the most amazing moments is in the dressing, which they didn't, of course, have in the television version, where in the dressing station at Borodino, um, after Borodino, where um, famously Andre, you know, is lying next to or in the same space as Anatole is having his leg sawn off. And Tostoy moves in just one sentence to the field surgeon who's just hacking limbs, who exits the tent to have a smoke. And before, it, and he holds it, the cigar, in a certain way that actually blood is wiped from the cigar 
Um, and such extraordinary, profound, terrifying moment of close-up. There's another wonderful thing, which I think we also did, didn't we, where Pierre is being seduced by Hélène, and uh, he can't pop the question, much to Hélène and Vasily Karagin's dismay. And, um, and he's just terrified, and he lusts after her, but he sort of knows that it's the beginning of a great disaster. And someone passes him, probably organized, a snuff box behind two seats away, behind the back of the half-naked, as Tolstoy describes, um, Elena Kuragin. So she has to lean forward. And it is the sight and the warmth that really just robs him of any Romanian willpower. But Tolstoy says, and the faint creak of her corset. And that is absolutely brilliant. And that's all... That's what actually does it. So he had this extraordinary macro-micro mastery, which again, I think actually great, great historical writers have actually, of the, the tiny detail and the immense Olympian gaze. Yes, you know? I mean, I, we, we talked about this. I think one of the secrets of Simon's history writing is this ability to focus in on a detail. When I was growing up, I found a lot of history writing very boring because it was all the same. Everything was given the equal weight and I think one of the great things about Simon's writing is it's this, it's this moment, this idea, this detail. Uh, and before, I think, history writing was very much a sort of, if you imagine, a high-angle shot, uh, whereas Simon it, it throws you right in and goes handheld and does close-ups. And you're, uh, I think you are a very visual writer, and I'm tempted to go into visualization sure. in your book, The Embarrassment of Riches, uh, which it, it has 317 emblems in it, signs in it, and you, <laughs> you were just very, very keen on telling the story, living in the moment, but also telling it visually. And I think you were yeah. influenced by Erwin Panofsky's uh, Meaning in the Visual Arts. Yeah, I did. that was a book which meant, again, doesn't sound like a very sexy book, but it's actually a wonderful book. He was from the Warburg School, um, and uh, they were in Hamburg, rather. Um, the, uh, they were very interested in symbols and iconography. And it was Panofsky, I think, who developed who, in this extraordinary book, really wonderful book, um, called... Um, uh, help, meaning, I'm meaning, get, in the meaning in the visual arts. Yeah, thank you. And it has an incredible essay about Poussin's Et in Arcadia Ego, which really is uh, just changes your whole view. But what he said, he developed the term iconology, um, which is now you know kind of used all the time, to be a kind of feedback loop between visual communication and the construction of a culture. In other words, actually signs and symbols, and in the Dutch case, painting then actually in some ways sort of tell you, give you a sense of your own shared identity. And it, you, it, you can't always make that case because class gets in the way, but in the case of the Dutch, this was the first mass art market. You could buy a simple tavern scene for about the, your weekly wage packet as a carpenter or a dyer or a tanner or something like that. So you know, this was a genuine mass art market. And um, so that sense, actually, of the two-way flow. A lot of the books I write are based on realizations that I've made a terrible mistake in the book that came before it. And the, bo and the book that was 
the, the earlier Dutch book, which is about the way the Dutch Republic crumbled in the face of the Napoleonic War and the French Revolution, called Patriots and Liberators. The one thing that it was barren of was actually images, uh, partly because it's the 18th century, not the glorious golden age of the 17th century, but in fact, 18th century Holland was sort of alive with not such great paintings, but it had an extraordinary kind of illuminated print culture, caricatures, and so on. So I thought that you were so obtuse, really, not to, not to make part, and I thought, well, I'd also overdetermined the tragedy in a way which had not yet properly understood what bound that Dutch culture together. And then when I went on one stage further, I thought, well, texts are all well and good. But it's not just a matter of paintings. It's a matter of tiles and engraved goblets um, and tapestries and practically everything you could think of had this very high level of visual saturation, not necessarily always pregnant with meaning. If there was something, again, a mistake about the ambassador riches, it probably was this over-infatuation with the delivery of meaning in those books. But, but yeah, and I think, I think ever, you know, then I realized that I had been cut out to really play in a Johan Heisinger kind of homo ludens way with the relationship between looking and reading, and that made entry into television that easier, I think, actually. Yes, we can, we can go in so many directions, but there are two things I particularly want, because it's, it's, it's not just about reading, it's about writing, it's about what made Simon a historian and the historian he is, and that, I think that is the purpose of this session. So I, as well as rhythm, detail, image. You're looking worried. As I'm worried we haven't it's 10 minutes, that. 53 seconds left. Yeah, um, but, but, Always um, a director. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> control thing, that's why we don't work together anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm available. <laughs> yeah, excuse me. You know. uh, the, next, <laughs> the next subject is pace, uh, the rhythm, yeah. pace of storytelling. And there are three books that we, well, anyway, there's The Leopard uh, by Lampedusa. Uh, the Radetzky March by Joseph Roth, and The Good Soldier, Spike. Spike, Spike. Yeah. Would you like to talk about any of those in terms of pace, in terms of the rhythm of your storytelling? Um, well, Spike, again, is... Uh, a, I don't know how many of you have read it. It's a truly wonderful book. Uh, in our First World War moment, it's very difficult to write an incredibly funny book about the First World War. I mean, The Catch-22 is another of my favorite books about the Second World War, but it's written by Mikhail Yaroslav Hasek, and, um, and it had wonderful illustrations that were uh, revived in the translation by Cecil, um, uh, ambassador in Prague, who gloried in the name of Cecil Parrot. I wish I'd met him just because I love that name very much, or else I wish I'd had a parrot called Cecil, really. <laughs> um, but Schweik begins with someone who, he's a sort of, simpleton who has that element of you know sublime wisdom actually and it begins in an inn a filthy kind of bohemian inn where they're talking about really the, the assassination of the archduke and only very dimly aware about what it would portend and i think it's at that moment where a, an, a, a criminal act is being performed and they all sort of get very worried about it. And what it is, is a fly is crawling over a portrait of the Kaiser and a sort of shat on the portrait in some way, which makes them expect the arrival of the police at any moment. So this is a book which starts with, um, you know, fantastically kind of um, misleadingly slow humor, laconic, you know, sort of earthy, laconic humor. Um, Radetzky March, which is sort of part of the same world by Joseph Roth, who's somebody 
uh, mentioned is just the opposite. Um, the Radetzky, I mean, he's a great writer, and, but the Radetzky March is, is the one to read. And it begins with a great storm of pace. And I think actually history, good history writing has to think about pace. And it's also, you're led on a wild goose chase. It's, it's um, a battle scene um, in which an, a very obscure member of um, East European, Josef Roth came from Brody on the western boundary of Galicia, um, saves the life of um, uh, Franz Josef almost by mistake. And it's actually a hurricane of things happening. And Roth is very conscious of elasticating the pace of things as the novel moves east and the family fortunes become more and more and more um, decomposed slightly, like the world he's really writing about. There is a moment, his has one of the two best adultery scenes, which happen very, very quickly. So quickly, it's erotically electrifying um, in, in the Radetzky march. The other amazing one, I think, is Sebastian Falks. It's the best bit of birdsong, actually, which, is, which happens very quickly and very weirdly and very mechanically, and then you don't go there again. So I think pace is a great thing to, you know, if someone's doing a PhD thesis, that's the last thing really on their mind, but I think it's actually a really, I, I thought about it a lot when, in Citizens, where the sort of, you know, you're thrown into this kind of tornado of events that can just get confusing and the, the, the memory and the mind can be dulled, really. This, the, the greatest of all, I think, uh, uh, after War and Peace, you know, The Leopard, written by Lampedusa, who did not live to see the success of The Leopard, because the book was sent to the kind of, um, you know, clique of Marxist publishers who were in charge, like um, Elsa Marante and, and Alberto Moravia and so on. Um, so he died without, without this being published, which is absolutely heartbreaking. The, the pace here, because it's set in Sicily in 1860, and the Risorgimento suddenly, you know, crashes into Sicily and into Naples. But it's unlike the movie, which is very good, where there's an elaborate battle scene. It's all kind of noises off. But here, again, the pace is amazingly manipulated and slows down. There's a ball scene which goes on forever, and you feel a kind of thickness. It has this extraordinary sense of sensuous, clotted, sensuous abundance to it. The, the, and it's all about times, as is indeed Tolstoy. The famous line of Lampedusa's ancestor, who's Don Fabrizio in here, is one has to change in order to remain the same. Do you want a bit of reading here? We don't have time for that. Um, Maybe not. I'd want to, I, I want to actually move on. I'm sorry, okay. I'm, we're going to carry on, if that's okay, and then we're going to stop, because uh, we, I really want to get this, if that's okay. We're, Simon will be very outside for questions, so just five minutes of this. Comedy, Simon. I think that mm. um, you, in 1980 you went to uh, Harvard, and, yep. uh, and not that you didn't know American literature or comedy before, but I think that you're very influenced by the American comic tradition from Twain through Catch-22, yeah. through S.J. Perlman, Bellows Herzog, Damon Runyon, yeah. Thomas Pynch, and right through to David Foster Wallace most yeah, recently. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, I think, weirdly, um, you know, American writing, we were given all the wrong things, actually. We were given, at school, we were given Thurber, who I think is wonderful in a way, but very sort of oddly ponderous 
comedy, I think, actually. And what, you know, when, when I wrote, first read Augie March, you know, American-born, there was this extraordinary kind of, you know, you had the clatter of the streetcar immediately. You had this extraordinary kind of explosion of, which, you know, occurs in Twain. Yeah, yeah Saul Bellow. But there was this thing, I suppose, was started by Twain, and Huckleberry Finn was an incredibly important, you know. But uh, why? Because Huckleberry Finn managed to be both you know, the language of, of Jim and of Huck, but of Shakespeare, too. It's, you know, about actors as well. It has extraordinary train-like performative delivery, which was so different from... I mean, I love Evelyn War too, but there was something kind of, you know, gin and tonicy really, about British comic writing, whereas I don't know what the drink would, would be, actually. It'd be a sli- it bourbon. would be bourbon. Yeah, it would be bourbon. That's exciting. It'd be bourbon on the rocks. It'd be kind of dense and rich and syrupy and uncontained. And, um, you know, Catch-22 is really a very, very great masterpiece still, I think, actually. And the greatest of, of, of the comic writers, Twain is a very good model for this. You know, let it all out there. They have this kind of extraordinary kind of release of liberated language through David Foster Wallace. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so you feel it's a kind of carnival of words that come from, oh, you know, it's true of Paul Beatty writing mm. now, to come from every kind of ethnic um, locution that America is. But there's also this extraordinary discipline. There is this sharpness. There is this knowing, wetting of the blade of writing that you get. I mean, it's the famous opening line, it was love at first sight. The first time Yossarian saw the chaplain, he fell madly in love with him. And, um, and Heller was an extraordinary writer, extraordinary person. He once actually told me, uh, we became friends. He became strangely over-infatuated with the English life, I think. But I was going in to give a lecture on Rembrandt, and Joe showed up, and he said, I bet you're going to tell a joke or two. And I said, could be. And he said, let me give you a word of advice, Sunshine, basically. He didn't really say Sunshine. He said, um, and this is good for all of us, he said, let them, always let them finish their laugh. Don't go straight on. And uh, he said, let them enjoy their laugh and then move on. And wow, was mm. he right? I did stand up once in Chicago before 800 absolutely hardcore elderly Jews. That was, <laughs> it was the best diet I ever had. I would lose pounds if I did that over and again. And I had Joe's, Joe's uh, advice in mind. So this, um, this uh, Orthodox rabbi comes into a pub with a parrot in his shoulder and the barman says, Where'd you get that? And the parrot says, gold is green. There are thousands of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to end. We're going to end with one uh, little detail. We're going to end with this essay. Um, uh, with Simon wanted to end with this, so we're just going to quickly... Um, have you got it, Simon? Or, or do you just want to describe it? I've got it. it? I've got it. No, I think I should. Is that um, all right? This is, um, this is... MFK, you say who it is. I'll, I'll, it's, it's MFK Fisher, uh, the American um, food writer. Um, and it's from, it's a story called Borderlands, and um, it's in her collection, Serve It Forth. It's a fantastic uh, lyrical writer who manages to make, uh, I think manages to make detail count and make it very, very punchy. Have you got it, Sam? No. Uh, you may, otherwise, we'll have to describe yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's weirdly not coming up. Well, tell Actually, us. It's not loading. Oh, because I can't get, oh, dear. No. Well, no, tell, tell them what you right, described to me. It. 
It's, it's called Borderland, yeah. It's it Borderland. is actually, uh, she is in a way, um, you know, it's a pity that she is really pigeonholed as a food writer because like other great food writers like Elizabeth David, she understands that actually writing about food is also writing about love and desire sex, sex. and money and sex. And this is a story set in Strasbourg where she is with her husband, Al Fisher, who's teaching in the years before the war. And it's dusk and it's cold. And there are sort of desultory military exercises down by the river and Al goes off. And she, and she, the essay begins with everybody has a secret eating, doesn't they, secret food. And then she has then a secret eating moment. And she takes a tangerine and she, um, she peels it, and then she puts it on a newspaper. And she says in the piece, great thing about the Courrier du Barin was that the printer's ink didn't leak. And then she puts the tangerine on the newspaper and the newspaper on the radiator. And um, she lets it fill the room with scent. And at a certain moment, she can't stand it longer, and she bites into one of these segments. And she describes that rush of cold juice as her tooth punctures the membrane of the tangerine segment. And she compares the kind of filigree, those tiny little membranes on a tangerine segment, um, to the crackling on a piece of old Chinese porcelain. Then she bites, and she said, there's the rush after the pulp. There is a rush of the cold juice. And she says, um, everybody has a secret, a secret eating. And the secret eating, you save a bit, as she had, for someone you love. That's amazing. So um, uh, I think Simon writes that kind of history. I have to do a very, very quick thing. I have to really thank my co-curator, David Kiniston, who's been yes. absolutely amazing throughout. Um, and I thank you. And I, and I actually, I have to just very quickly uh, thank uh, Inez and Mary, the librarians, Philip, who's raised us all this money to help us, Carol, who's run all the events, and John, who's done sound for every single event. So I'd really like to thank them. And, and I'd like to thank you, particularly the noble three-day pass holders who've done a three-day pass. And I must thank um, Kathy, Adina, Carmel, properly. That's thank you. And uh, Simon wants to do thank you, but yes, what do you no, want to Well, I want to thank everybody. But I want to say, if there, I can't believe there's anyone here who's not a member of the London Library. But folks, get your act together. <laughs> it will change your life in the most wonderful way. Um, maybe your home is perfect. But if you want another perfect home to go to, become a member of the London Library. Because we've just that, please do. And because um, and, uh, we've just saved you 18,000 quid in uh, studying with Simon Sharma. Um, so um, uh, I'd really like, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I can't really say this in front of David, but you know, there are very few historians I admire more than Simon. What a literate man, what a reading list, what a historian, and uh, what a perfect last event. Thank you so much for coming. Please thank Simon Sharma. Thank you.